St. Paul says a lot of really uh, interesting things that are not always immediately clear in our 21st century context. And in fact, uh, Peter writing in his second epistle makes it clear that not everything was immediately straightforward in his first century context either. Uh, Peter writes that uh, Paul writes things that are difficult to understand and I think we can concur In this little section of Romans that we're going to look at this morning, Paul wants to tell us something about the word that saves us. And it's more profound than it might first appear. Paul begins by referencing a passage in Deuteronomy. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 30, and it's where Moses is speaking, and he says to the people, just after he's given the law to them, he says, For this command which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross the sea for us to get it for us to make us hear it, that we may observe it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. So you can hear the same ideas there, uh, Paul borrowing from Moses. Moses had just delivered the law. He was saying, there, that's the law. You've got it now. It's not far away. It's at hand. You can engage with it. And Paul is wanting to say something kind of similar. Whereas the commandments were to be central to the people of Israel, Jesus is to be central to the people of faith who follow him. By his life, the demonstrated dynamics of uh, the way he related with people, he was forming a new community. And while Jesus is at the centre of that, then we know what to do and how to be. So it's accessible. The word of salvation is not a mystery. It's not hidden. It's not far off. You do not need to undertake an epic quest to understand it. Because, you know, ancient... Greek myths were all about epic quests to get the thing you need. We're not about that. Uh, No degrees in theology or philosophy or ethics are required. Jesus is one of the most accessible people you will ever encounter. Earlier in his epistle to the Romans that we've read from, Paul had shared uh, about this story with the Roman Christians. And he's basically saying God's love for us is expressed in this willing self-giving of his son who saves us by grace. And you know, there's a funny thing that whenever a person gives themselves to another in grace, we know the truth of that. There's a relational quality about it that resonates deeply with our humanity. When someone gives themselves for another... And you know that in your own life, when someone actually goes out of their way for you, it can do big ways or small, but if someone does extend themselves and give themselves to you or for you in a particular way, you experience the divine love value of that, I think. It's very, very accessible to us. It's close, but it's not always easy to hear. Just because Jesus is accessible does not mean everyone will access him. And even when the good news is a familiar story to us, we sometimes struggle to receive it 
and accept it and believe it and walk with it. I mean, many of us could retell the, Jesus, the stories of Jesus' encounters in the gospel where he meets people, it might be the rich young ruler or the, the woman who had hemorrhaging or you know, any number of little stories. And we might be even able to give a nice, succinct gospel presentation and tell other people the story. But that's different to being persuaded of the life-orienting truth of this story. Like, I know when a child is acting up if they're behaving kind of badly, as we would say, that they're actually trying to communicate something, albeit clumsily. They're having a reaction. And I'm aware that um, this clumsy way of communicating is uh, not to be reacted to because if you want to resolve the situation, the least effective way of resolving a situation with a child is to react to their reaction because then it tends to escalate. And I know this. I've read the theories and I believe it. I think that's true. Uh, I think I'm even profoundly persuaded by it, perhaps. And yet I find it very difficult to hear when my daughters act up. That's really interesting. I know the story. I know the ideas. But when my daughters behave in a way that I think is problematic, uh, I find myself reacting. And I can even almost tell myself, don't react, Dave, but it's already happening. And things just escalate and they don't get resolved. There's a sense in which that can happen for us in relation to accessing the gospel. We can know the truth of it, but somehow that truth is elusive even in our knowing of it. It's a very confusing thing. So Paul says to us, we should confess with our mouth this gospel story. Uh, If knowing the story is not the same thing as putting our trust in the story, why is it so important to confess the story? Surely it's more important to live as faithful disciples, and that is certainly important, to live out our religion. Uh, But why is Paul wanting us to confess? What do we do when we make a confession? What is it that's going on there? Any confession at all? We put words to something. And by that process, we, we formulate and articulate something that we take responsibility for and say, this is my testimony, this is what I see and feel and believe and this is what I want to tell you. We we personally identify with what we're saying is true. Our confession is something that we hold up, as it were, to other people and to ourselves. It's kind of, it's a thing we put out there. So Paul says that's an important thing to do. What about believing in your heart? That's different again from just uh, assenting to a story What is this believing in your heart? When you believe something in your heart, it shapes the way we relate with one another. It orients our desires, the way we spend ourselves, our time, our money, our attention, what we decide to do and decide not to do. And Paul identifies the content of what we need to believe in our heart. We need to believe that God raised Jesus again from the dead. We need to trust in that power of God to bring life beyond death. And why is that so important? I think it's so important because only the person who trusts that God has this power to bring life beyond the life that we know, only a person who trusts that in the depths of their being will be willing to give their life, to give up the only life they know in the hope that there will be 
a deeper, richer, fuller life as a consequence. So that's a pretty important kind of conviction in a way. But of course, you know, we reveal ourselves all the time. It's not uncommon for people to confess one thing with their mouth and believe something quite different in their heart. And uh, as I've said here many times before, I think the most accurate read of what people actually believe is to look at the way they behave. Because when a person confesses one thing but enacts another, what do we call them? We call them a, a hypocrite, which comes from the Greek word which means an actor. They're actually performing a role, it's not really them. So they're saying the words of a character, not them. And we, we discover that because when we see what they really do, they come out of that character role and become themselves. Uh, a couple of years ago, some of you will remember uh, when the same-sex marriage debate was going on and our Deputy Prime Minister at the time, Barnaby Joyce, was vehement about the sanctity of marriage and uh, how it should be protected and all that sort of stuff. And at the same time, apparently, he was having an illicit affair with one of his staffers. And he got absolutely pummeled by the media for that. And why? Why was he pummeled by the media? Because we kind of know that that's hypocrisy. You, you say one thing, but your life demonstrates something different. But none of us should be too proud or ready to throw stones because we all are very prone to do that. You know, sometimes we, we say it louder and louder because we think we believe it and we want to convince ourselves we believe it, but our actions tell us or testify to something in a very different direction. And so we come to the concluding part of this little passage and again Paul who's just full of the Old Testament in his mind and so can easily pick up quotes from the, the law and the prophets and so forth and here he picks up a word from Isaiah, from Isaiah 28 and he says, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. Whoever believes in it will not be disappointed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Then hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overflow the secret place. And he, Paul's picking up this quote from Isaiah. Isaiah was speaking to the people at a time when they kind of basically thought that because they were descendants of Abraham, they were the people of God. And Isaiah is at pains to say, it's not your self-proclaimed status that is your security. There is an objective standard of life that really identifies who you are. There is a standard of justice and righteousness and no amount of self-reassuring twaddle will actually change that reality. In fact, it will be exposed for what it is. Hail will sweep away that refuge of lies and illusions will be broken and indeed the people were disillusioned. They had to wake up to the realities. Because identity is not an extrinsic thing. Sometimes we get caught up into thinking that the thing we are part of defines who we are. Now that could be a sporting team, I'm one of the Matildas or whatever it might be. I think they're a girl team, aren't they? Uh, it could be our... <laughs> there's a theme going on today. Uh, it could be our career. You know, I'm an architect or I'm a minister or I'm a whatever it might be. 
It could even be our faith tradition. I'm a Christian, I'm a uniting church, I'm a Muslim. These things are very persuasive ways of constructing our identity. We kind of wrap them around us. And that seems to be what happened for many of the people of God down through history. They became convinced that simply by virtue of being part of this group, they were the people of God. And we are very much prone to do a similar thing. Yet Jesus calls this out very early on in his ministry. He says uh, in, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you who he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when the flood occurred, the torrents burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation, and the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was very great. See, being a follower of Jesus is not about convincing anyone, not even God, of your status. It's not about constructing an identity. It is simply about following. And Paul says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, whoever wants to follow, they will not miss out. And again, he's picking up a theme here from Joel, the prophet Joel. And I will co- it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered, says the prophet Joel. And this is no superficial call. For any who genuinely call on God, whose mouths and lives confess together in concert, who genuinely put their trust in God, these people will find that there is a change that takes place from the deepest parts of us, which in turn becomes manifest in every part of our life. We don't simply know the story. We don't just talk the talk. It's not even merely about attending worship on a regular basis, but we live in a way that is for the benefit of all people. We live into the story of Jesus, giving ourselves for something bigger than simply us. A couple of people giving themselves to working bee, I think. Recognise them? (laughs) See, when Paul writes these words, that the word is in your mouth and in your heart and that if you confess and believe you shall be saved, he's effectively saying to the Christians in Rome and to us who read it subsequently that the truth is not hard to know if you want to know it. The hardest part is wanting to know it. The truth is not hard to know if you want to know it. And as we articulate that truth, as we trust it and live consistently with it, we are saved from the lies and self-deception that so easily hollow out our life. So many things are empty and vacuous these days because there is no correlation between what is said and the reality And if you want to be saved from that emptiness, that meaninglessness, then you confess and you believe 
in the truth. This is not about trying to be perfect. It's about confessing, always holding before us the only true model of perfect humanity, that loving, self-giving, life-giving way of Jesus and believing that he is the way. And then the only appropriate thing to do, of course, is to give ourselves to walk with him. And that's the call, to confess and believe. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come amongst us, lived to show us a way and given yourself utterly for us. We thank you that you did not stay in the grave, but you rose again. And we have the hope of a life beyond the life we know, that we might be ready to give the life we know, to find what you would call us to. We just thank you for the richness of that and say yes. Amen.